Welcome everyone to CPO's eighth seminar in our series. Um, briefly, just for those of you who don't know us, um, CPO is a research centre at UCL. I, I often say new, but we're not that new anymore. Um, and we're working to inform and design evidence-led education policy and wider practice that equalises opportunities throughout life. Um, and as usual, we're really delighted to have all of you join us here for this seminar today. We often get a mixed audience uh, of academics, policymakers, um, third sector workers and um, practitioners. So it's lovely to have you all here. Um, today, we're delighted to be joined by Dr. Alice Bradbury and Professor Dominic Wise from the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy in our own department. It's lovely to have you both with us. Thank you for joining us. Um, Alice is, the, is an Associate Professor of Sociology of Education and Co-Director of the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy. Her research interests are around the relationship between education policy and inequalities in terms of class, gender and race, um, very close to our own interests. And her research examines the impact of policy in primary and early years education with a focus on issues of social justice. Um, Alice has a book coming out tomorrow titled Ability, Inequality and Post-Pandemic Schools, Rethinking Contemporary Myths of Meritocracy. And that will be published by Policy Press, so do keep an eye out for that in your local bookstore. Um, Dom, Dominic is a professor of early childhood and primary education. He's the president of British Educational Research Association and founding director of the Helen Hamlin Centre for Pedagogy. He's also a fellow of the a fellow of the Academy of Social Science and a fellow of the Royal Society for the Encouragement of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. The main focus of Dom's research is curriculum and pedagogy, and his research has contributed to understanding um, of the pedagogy of writing, reading, literacy and creativity across the life course. So, as I said, we're delighted to have them with us today. Alice and Dom are both going to present. Dom's going first and they're going to talk about reading, phonics and testing, teaching during the pandemic and beyond. And as usual, um, if we can keep any clarification questions uh, into the Q&A box during the talk, and I'll, I'll, I'll interrupt the, uh, the speakers as and when appropriate. Otherwise, any substantive questions that you have, if you can hold them to the end, again, if you can put them in the Q&A box um, and, and we'll monitor them as we go. So thanks very much. Handing over to you, Dom, off you go. Thanks ever so much um, for that introduction. It's so wonderful to be talking today um, as part of the CPO series. We, uh, we very much enjoy the work you do and we very much respect the things we learn from you. But today we get a chance to um, articulate some of our ideas. And I wanna start by just saying um, how important reading is. I mean, um, it's absolutely fundamental to what early year settings in schools do. Um, and if children don't learn to read, we know from a, a wide range of robust data that um, their life chances are damaged. So on the one hand, uh, reading is terrifically important. And at the same time as being important, the debates around phonics and testing and pedagogy in terms of reading have been sometimes extreme. Uh, always, I think, driven by this sense of how important reading is. But as I say, uh, it can get a bit extreme. Um, and some people enjoy that. Uh, and other of us sometimes get a tiny bit weary on occasion. However, 
Um, I'm delighted to say that partly because of Alice's, working with Alice as my co-director in the Helen Hamlin Centre has really um, reinvigorated my thinking in so many ways. Um, and Alice uh, led the proposal for this seminar uh, and we've been working together as you'll hear on some new work. So um, if we go to the next slide, I'll, I'll just quickly outline um, what we're going to say. Um, I'm going to begin with, um, well, I'm going to begin with a, what I've called a little bit of history. Um, it can only be a little bit in, in the time available. Um, I have delved quite deeply into histories of reading and writing, so I'll share some tiny glimpses of that. The main thing I'm uh, bringing today, and by the way, Alice and I have begun uh, this work, so it's work very much work in progress, and, and hence we are genuinely interested in people's thoughts and reflections on, on where we've got with this. It's also got multiple components already. And so, of course, today we can only talk about a couple. And, and I've, for my part, I've chosen to talk about a new analysis that I've been leading to do with already published research. And, and reading has attracted, I think, a huge amount of research. It's difficult to, to, say, to say, compare it with other areas, but you know, there are, for example, as you will see, many, many, many um, experimental trials that have looked at which pedagogies or which approaches to teaching are effective, which are more effective and so on. Then um, the main emphasis of, of Alice's presentation is to do with assessment of reading uh, and in particular the, the phonics screening check for the purposes of today's talk. Uh, and we've got things to say about uh, policy because policy in England has, has since 2008 had a very particular emphasis on a particular kind of phonics teaching. Uh, I, I'm aware of the debate for two reasons. In 2008 I published two papers both of which in different journals have become the most highly cited. Uh, one was with Usha Goswami and one with Morag Stiles. But I've also published now four editions of my book, Teaching English Language and Literacy. And I, I've trawled back through that and it's fascinating to see how the section about the history of the reading debates has changed. And, and, and I realized that some things that were there in the first edition are still important and yet got lost in subsequent editions. Okay, so on to uh, a little bit of history. Well, thank you, Alison. In fact, before the, before the history, a uh, good point. Let's have the research questions. Always a good place for researchers. So these questions are our overarching questions for the various um, things that we're working on in relation to phonics and reading. We are interested in England's national curriculum and assessment processes and model. However, we, we are locating this to some degree and varying degrees in comparison with other countries, particularly ones where the English language is dominant. We want, we're interested in what's most effective, you know, what works actually in the teaching of reading and, and, and how do assessment systems such as high stakes assessment systems affect the pedagogy of teaching reading. Uh, and a, a, a consistent interest of mine has been about what experimental trial evidence can and cannot tell us. And that's something that I will go into 
shortly. So now definitely on to a bit of history. Um, so you can see that this is from the early 17th century, 1610, when, and I haven't got time to talk about the way the English language itself has a strand of history where the first books of course were written that told people how to speak the English language better or how to learn to read better. And of course, those, the work, there was the first book or the first publication. And this is a very early one that, that Michael identified. And there were a whole load of these spelling books in England. And you'll see it says, therefore let the scholar, which meant pupil, being thus traded, which meant schooled, from letters to syllables. So begin with letters and then go to syllables, letters to syllables of one consonant, and then from syllables of one consonant to many consonants and so on. And, and you can see there what, what has become well recognized as a bottom up approach. Start with the smaller bits and proceed to the bigger bits to, uh, to help children learn to read. I said it was a little bit of history, so rather a quick jump into the 20th century and indeed the 1990s. Um, I think it's important to point out that the debates in their extreme forms um, do neglect the evidence rather. But surprisingly, one area where the evidence is not strong is at any given year, let's say, what is happening in classrooms in early year settings and primary schools and how do we know inspection reports you know are one source and yet they're not the same as people who systematically set out to research what is actually happening in practice however in this example um, from the 1990s what we now called Ofsted was a very different organization and her majesty's inspectorate in my view, were rather better regarded for their ability to genuinely engage professionally and engage around evidence. And this was one of the report taken from one of the reports they did. You can see there, they say that they listened to 2000 children reading as part of their report. They, they went to 470 classes. Their view overall in the 1990s was that phonics skills were taught almost universally and usually to beneficial effect. That, by the way, was confirmed by what as researchers we would regard as a more robust study by the NFER led by Cato um, and other colleagues involved. They found pretty much the same. And, and if you listen to some people, they'll tell you that, that phonics in England has been neglected or things like the whole language approach have, have ridden like a, like I was going to say virus, that's a very unfortunate analogy, but they've, they, they've distorted what is some people regard as what should be lots and lots of phonics teaching. And so something, so I, I alluded earlier to 2008, and 2008 was, was a very important time in policy terms, in terms of the teaching of reading, the national curriculum. And actually, um, some of this was, you can link it to wider policy concerns, um, beginning with New Labour uh, in 1997, Michael Barber's role in the national literacy strategy, 
it was a it was a uh, it was a lot of politics around education then, and there still is, of course. Anyway, the Rose Report um, led to what we now think was a rather significant change to policy, and Rose recommended in the end that I quote high quality systematic phonic work should be taught discreetly. And what that means is separately. Now in the past, what the way phonics was taught typically was non-systematic. Uh, and there is some good evidence suggesting that systematic phonics teaching is better than non-systematic. However, as you'll see later, that's not quite as clear as we once thought. Uh, but, but this change was met to some of you may seem small, you know, well, does it really matter if, if now uh, Sir Jim Rose was saying it must be taught discreetly? Well, we think by the end of our presentation, you'll see actually there are serious consequences to that recommendation. Uh, and then of course, the thing that Alice is gonna focus on um, is the, the phonics screening check. And I would say that the phonics screening check is part of a whole series of what I'll call apparatus, government apparatus, that they use as levers or means of control increasingly over pedagogy, something that traditionally has been regarded as the, as the thing that teachers as professionals are best able to determine. And so to my specific focus from our phonics projects, um, what I've been doing in terms of the already, the wealth of uh, high quality research already published. So slightly building on some ideas I developed in 2008 and, and the work I did to inform those papers, but actually now taking, I think, a much, even more rigorous approach to this. I began by looking for systematic reviews as we often do as a sort of starting point. So existing published systematic reviews about the teaching of phonics and reading. I went for those published after 2008 because I've, I captured those prior to 2008 in my previous publications. I wanted ones that included a meta-analysis. Um, I, I expected there to be an evaluation of methodological quality of the studies included in the systematic reviews. I wanted an analysis of publication bias because that's rather important in terms of the overall understanding of, of effects. And so I ended up by identifying a tertiary review by Bowers and one by Torgerson et al., um, both of which were entirely relevant to our search for uh, effective teaching phonics and reading. Now, I've, you see, I've put the, the question there, the consensus starts to break down. Well, I would count myself as saying, you know, in general, I've been saying over the years, uh, there's powerful evidence that phonics teaching works to help young children's reading. It shouldn't be um, overemphasized. It should be, you know, sensibly balanced in relation to other, other important bits like comprehension. But having done this work recently, um, I was all a bit shocked that actually the evidence base is nowhere near as firm even to make those statements. So um, we can see here a quote from 
Carol Torgerson and colleagues in their, in their tertiary review and that having, uh, and by the way, they were building on a something they did around about 2007, as I recall, 2006, they did a systematic review. So they've updated as well. And their conclusion was that actually, the, if you want to know what's effective in the teaching of reading, the effective interventions in these studies added phonics to the quote, whole language approaches. And then overall, they say balanced instruction is indicated. And then the, the other um, tertiary review is Bowers. Um, again, coming to a similar conclusion, there's little, well, actually even stronger, there's little or no evidence that systematic phonics is better than standard alternative methods used in schools. The findings undermine the claim that systematic phonics is more effective than alternative methods, including that should say unsystematic phonics, such as whole language. Uh, within the quote. Now, not surprisingly, you'll hear that not everyone agrees even with these well-constructed uh, reviews. Uh, so uh, Bowers uh, actually questions a little bit of the methodology of the Torgerson et al. Uh, review. And our own colleague, Rob Savage, um, has some things with, and also a published response to Bowers where uh, Savage and Co. question again some, some of the assumptions and methods that Bowers used. So I wanted to go further than that. Um, I wanted to get down to the detail analysis of individual studies. And so in the end, I, I needed to select, I wanted to select the best fit for my research questions. And I wanted the, the most recent systematic review as a way to select uh, some robust studies. And the one by Suggett published in 2016 was the one that I selected. And it was also cited by the other uh, publications I've already mentioned. Suggett's overall conclusion was that phonemic awareness training was more effective than phonics interventions. And that the greatest effect sizes at follow-up appeared to result from interventions with a comprehension component. So obviously that in itself is interesting, but I wanted to go further and I, and I wanted to look at the in each, every one of the individual studies that Suggett put together in his systematic review and meta-analysis. And then I obviously, the research questions we have meant I needed criteria for which of the individual studies I would prioritize. So you can see there the things that I felt were important. In my view, we now must pay attention, more attention to, to experimental trials that have longitudinal measures at least one year after the intervention and preferably more years. There is, in my view, um, an imbalance towards children whose reading development is atypical. So for example, children with special needs, that's absolutely necessary because they are the most children in most need of support. But my view is we also need to get evidence-informed pedagogy for typically developing children. So that was my main focus. Um, there must be a, a standardized test of reading comprehension in any, for me, in any study for it to meet my criteria. 
the language of instruction should be English because we know from um, other work that the orthography of the language does have effect on um, the different reading strategies. And, and given I was thinking about England, uh, then obviously that makes sense. I wanted the studies to have a sample of children from age five to age seven, uh, because that is from previous work where I've done a slightly similar process. That seems to be where the studies coalesce around the ideal age. Uh, it was important that any experimental trial included um, ways to evaluate the fidelity to the intervention. So this is something I think that's developed over the years. There needs to be specific ways that the researchers check that the teachers were indeed delivering the intervention in the way it was intended. Uh, and the other bit to this is it needs to be delivered by teachers. So early years teachers uh, and our primary teachers as part of their normal teaching. So those are my criteria. Uh, and then what did I find um, in, in what I'm calling my systematic qualitative metasynthesis? So there were 55 randomized control trials um, listed in the systematic review, but only seven of those met only four of my criteria. And none of them met all of the criteria. And so what that means is, for me, I want to know, I want research that's being carried out in England in a way that meets my criteria. So I can form views about policy and practice in England. Uh, yes, we, we compare with other countries, but that, that's the driving need here. Indeed, across and these, only one study, just one study carried out in the English language and taught by teachers rather than what are called para-educators, we might call teaching assistants, for example, was this study undertaken in Canada. Uh, and I characterize having looked carefully at the, uh, the explanation of what the intervention was. This was uh, balanced instruction. So for me, although uh, it doesn't meet all my criteria, and although it was undertaken in Canada, not England, this is a powerful work showing quite clearly that balanced instruction of, of the uh, arms they used in the trial was, was the effective approach. That's a balanced approach to reading teaching, basically. Uh, some other studies uh, that met slightly fewer uh, criteria, but important and, and you know, relevant for consideration, Vadassi and colleagues in the USA, uh, although they were implemented by para-educators, not by teachers. Um, so that's my caveat, the lots of caveats. Um, however, the intervention in, in that, remember these are all randomized control trials, longitudinal measures. So they do meet some of my criteria. Um, in, in their intervention that was effective, it clearly connected the teaching about the alphabetic code with whole text um, input and you know, you can see in the quote, it's very specific. The last 15 minutes of each tutoring session was allocated for oral reading practice in decodable texts. Uh, and then notice also that the paraeducators chose a reading method that matched each student's reading skills. So, so this is not uh, a simple 
follow the dots manual. This is a more professionally oriented intervention. And so at this point, and I, I re-emphasize that it's work in progress, um, my conclusions from this, this uh, systematic qualitative metasynthesis were, well, none of the RCTs met all the criteria required for more definitive conclusions about teaching, reading uh, in policy and practice in England. So I am, I am extrapolating with all the caveats I've been mentioning of what is likely to be effective it seems to me that uh, carefully connected reading of whole texts, uh, there are debates about whether decodable books are more advantageous than real books, but I think fair to say that both you know, offer things. Um, and there needs to be a strong focus on reading for, for meaning in all lessons, and that's the key here. Um, best evidence is that they should be implemented with children in year one. Uh, they should be delivered by class teachers, but as you've seen, there is evidence, um, there is evidence that the paraeducators uh, can be effective, and so we might want to consider more carefully how we support class teachers. Um, interestingly, the, the, the studies that had met most of the criteria were typically about changes to normal classroom curriculum. They were a bit less about, right, here's this completely new um, phonics scheme that we want you to, you know, use as a manual. So there's a there's an element of professional decision making there. Um, and the bit I'm always perplexed by, actually, is that we struggle to get um, robust information about how long, how much phonics teaching should go on. And lots of people quite rightly are concerned that it, if, if, if there's too much phonics teaching, what's happening to the other things like reading comprehension or you know, um, engaging in children's literature in a variety of ways. So actually, um, the lessons were between 36 hours and 60 hours in total teaching time across, this is the, the sort of averages across the effective interventions. That's actually rather a lot. I do wonder um, whether, you know, whether we could do it a bit quicker. So I, I think at this point I'll pass on to you, Alice. I hope I've got the right slide in mind. No, <laughs> thanks. Um, yes, of course. So, the, so the corollary to the like to, to my interpretation of what's likely is it's very unlikely that phonics, 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 phonics teaching will be most effective if it's disconnected from the reading of whole texts, uh, and that bit is at the moment contrary to England's cur current policy. Now, Alice's. Uh, presentation today will we'll shed more light on, on, on precisely this. Thanks, Dom. Um, so as, as Dom said, we're going to kind of shift our thinking now from the teaching of reading to the assessment of reading. And I'm going to talk about um, both the assessment of reading and how that's happened, um, particularly during the pandemic, and then also think about how what the relationship is between the assessment of reading, particularly by the phonics screening check, and how reading is taught. Um, I come at this from a slightly different perspective, not as a, a kind of literacy expert, but um, as, as was mentioned at the beginning, my research is really about policy and its impact on pedagogy, and I'm, I'm 
really interested in how teachers make sense of policy and what difference it makes to their kind of everyday lives and how they teach things and what they prioritize and so on. So um, I'm kind of coming from that kind of policy sociology um, kind of world. Um, I'm going to begin by just explaining for those people not familiar with the system, um, how we assess reading at primary level. So there's actually four statutory assessments that have to be done um, from the EYFS profile, which has a specific early learning goal on reading, which I've put here. And children have to be, if they meet that, they're labelled as expected. Um, we have the phonics screening check, which I'm going to talk more about, but we also have uh, a reading paper teacher assessed in and teacher assessment in um, key stage one and then a formal test in key stage two, where children are judged as having met um, ARE, the age related expectations, or maybe as not having met them or perhaps having met greater depth. So we have quite a lot of uh, reading assessment. The one I'm going to talk about, though, is, is the phonic screening check, because I've been interested in this for quite a long time, because it's just a really strange assessment, to be honest. It's a very a sort of distinct policy, which doesn't fit with a lot of the other assessment policies that we have. Um, it's got a kind of medical terminology about it being a check. It's talked about as a diagnostic tool. Um, it's only about phonic decoding. So it's the only assessment we have, which is about one particular skill. Um, subsequently, they brought in their multiplication tables check, which is, a, which is a bit more like this. But up until 2012, you know, all of the reading assessments were about reading more broadly, whereas the phonic screen check is just about decoding. Um, so for me, it's quite interesting. It's also got a slightly different model in terms of assessment in that you can fail it. Basically, there's a, it's passing or failing if you get a certain score. And if you don't pass it, you have to do it again. And there aren't really other assessments like that um, in primary, at primary level. You have to do it again at the end of year two. Um, and of course, if you fail it again, you, you don't have to do it again, though. But, um, so the idea is that you are sort of screening and checking for who has not sort of built this skill. So this is how the... Um, government kind of describe it as a short light touch assessment and I'm going to explain exactly what it involves for those of you who haven't had the pleasure. Um, it's about phonic decoding which is turning the uh, shapes on the page into the appropriate uh, sounds um, and the idea is that it's given this kind of uh, identification purpose identifying children who need extra help um, and then schools are going to be able to use it to check and from the very start, this has been controversial because, of course, teachers who are teaching children on a daily basis have always said, we don't need this to know who can do phonic decoding. We, we can we know that ourselves. So um, it's it's kind of always been a bit unpopular on that basis because it, it's seen as a check on teachers ability to know their their pupils. So um, just to give you a kind of illustration, this is what it looks like. This is a sample. Uh, this is what the teacher has. Basically, they show the children 40 different words. I'll, I'll show you what the children get in a moment. And the teacher has to, it's done one-to-one. -one. The child has to say each of the words in the phonetically correct way. And the teacher then ticks correct or incorrect. Um, it takes a few minutes um, and it has to be done kind of with various kind of formal uh, procedures around it. Um, and as it's statutory, so it does have to be reported to, to the government. 
Um, you'll have noticed if you're eagle-eyed that um, there are some words there which are what they call pseudo words, um, which you'll see in a moment. So it's made up of two types of words, the real words. So you get a sheet like this, which you'd have to read out um, as in at beg some. These are all phonetically consistent words. You don't get any uh, what they call red words within the terminology of um, a lot of phonics, the ones that are phonetically inconsistent, you wouldn't get to or go or the because they don't, they don't fit phonics. You'd only get phonetically consistent words like this. You'd also get pseudo words, which are always accompanied by a little alien or a little creature um, to, to indicate that they're made up words and they are, you have to read them in phonetically consistent ways. So this would be ot, vap, osk, ect. Um, so you basically it's, it's testing that very specific skill. And um, this use of pseudo words, has, as I said, always been very controversial, particularly because it divorces um, the act of reading from meaning making. Um, you know, it don't, you don't have to understand what any of this is in order to be able to say, say these sounds. Um, it's been going since um, 2012, and this is the latest data from 2019. You can see that basically the light blue line is the proportion of children passing, as it were, which has gone up consistently and uh, plateaued about 80%. So 20% of children still fail the test and then about 10% still fail it after um, having done it again in year two. And that's, um, I think, quite interesting when you'll see how, how some of the test is talked about by politicians. Um, basically, schools have got better at preparing children for this test and invested more in, in phonics teaching. And you can see that it's had a, a real effect. Um, I wrote, because I've been interested in this in a while because, um, because of this interesting uh, assessment, um, I wrote something back in 2014 about the um, introduction of the phonics test, basically doing a, a policy genealogy of it. I went back into all the policy documents and this is a speech which I quote in that paper from Michael Gove from when they were in opposition, which is one of the earliest signs of the phonic screening check. He talks about it as a, as a simple reading test um, in this case, but his case for needing it is incredibly emotive. It's all about uh, children being uh, imprisoned in ignorance all their lives, ending up in street gangs, um, being truants, children who have given up on hope, and I think it's just important to, to, to kind of give that bit of background that actually this is a political um, kind of message that, you know, is, is the origin of the phonics screening check. The um, Conservative government put it in their manifesto um, before they came into power in 2010 with a kind of agenda of saying, we need to make sure that everyone is able to read and we will do that by having a phonics test. And that is obviously, again, a very contested idea that is having a phonics test the way to help children to read. And I would just highlight here um, this problem that one in five children leaving primary school unable to read properly. Um, that was the kind of logic for saying we need to make sure that teachers are doing phonics. So there's been kind of a range of research um, on the phonics screen check, not, not a huge amount, some of which has been um, very technical, as you can see from the, the quote here from Darnold, Solty and Wall, they're talking all about the GPCs, which are the graphene phoneme correspondences. They've done very technical um, analysis of the test. 
Um, they've also argued that actually doing well in the test is dependent on vocabulary knowledge, um, not just phonics skills. So there's technical problems with the test. Um, there's also been my own research with Guy Roberts Holmes on um, uh, grouping, which found that phonics was having a real influence on children um, from the age of two being put into ability groups because they were being put into different um, sections for which phase of phonics they were learning because phonics um, is sort of systematic phonics is divided into phases. Um, so we found that was a kind of uh, the, the test was uh, being the justification for for a lot of grouping and also that we found like Carter did that it was a very separate area of the curriculum and for those of you who have primary um, age children in reception or year one or even nursery they will come home and talk about a phonics lesson as opposed to an English lesson um, in my experience anyway. Um, so there is a range of research and what we wanted to do um, with this project as well as all of the um, uh, the systematic review that Dominic has talked about is to collect some data from teachers about what is actually happening. Um, the course COVID is, is, is here as a kind of um, backdrop and it was cancelled of course in 2020 like all statutory assessments but interestingly the government decided they wanted the children who were in year one to do it in, year, in their first term of year two because they had missed it to catch them. And so actually the only statutory assessment that has taken place since 2019 in primary schools is a phonics screening check, which was done last autumn. We did some research, um, a survey of um, teachers in year two, uh, year one and reception. And I did some interviews with some head teachers as well. Some of them were recruited through more than a score, um, some recruited independently. So we had some who were quite campaigning and some who were, were not. Um, and you'll see some of, the, some of their quotes. So we were interested in two questions really with this survey. We we're interested in what was happening with doing the, the phonics screen check, you know, when schools were just coming back, they were recovering, they were trying to get children back into um, sort of patterns of learning. And then also a bigger question about, you know, um, how phonics is being taught, how reading is being taught. So you, you've got sort of two sides to it. So I'm gonna quickly go through um, some of the responses from the issue of doing the test in the pandemic and then move on to the issue about how it affects pedagogy. So we've put, this is some of the findings which are in our working paper if you're interested. Um, we found that um, unsurprisingly it's, it's never been a popular test but putting it into uh, year two, where it normally isn't there until the end of year two and only for a small number of children, um, putting it into the autumn of year two um, was not popular amongst year two teachers. Um, they didn't think it was necessary. They have already got rigorous systems of assessment. Um, they thought it was pointless, irrelevant, so on. Um, and some identify particularly this, the problem of how it narrows down one particular skill. So this teacher in the survey wrote that um, they are reading words in isolation, which is absolutely, absolutely not the main event in terms of learning to read. So they were generally um, very, not, not entirely, but generally um, disapproving of the fact that um, they were going to have to do the, the phonics screening check in the autumn. Underlying that is a sense that it's not there to help teachers. It's there as a measure of school performance um, as part of the kind of data profile of the school. 
Um, and the head teacher very motively talked about it as a, just another stick to beat teachers with or another finger pointing exercise. Um, the, the feeling, as I said, was that you don't need uh, a test to work out who can do phonics. Teachers have, can use their own professional judgments. And actually there's something really indicative of a lack of trust in the fact that teachers are having to do this and having to do it because children missed it in year one. There was also a feeling, which again won't surprise you if you've read any other research about um, kind of schools and COVID, that having an extra test was not a um, not very welcome, um, particularly year two. Also, at that point, they thought they were going to have to do year two SATs, which have since been cancelled. Um, they talked about having the SAT stress and the phonic stress and catching up. Um, and it was getting in the way of the kind of focus on welfare, which we've seen in very much prominent in primary schools. Um, there are also practical problems like having to do one-to-one -one tests with all of your children um, when staff members were absent, um, and also the kind of very negative experiences for children who are struggling and you know, basically having to sit a child down and make them try to read 40 words, which they can't read being a very, um, a very negative experience. And the final kind of finding from the, the year two teachers was really relevant to this issue about the relationship between assessment and pedagogy. So because they were having to do the ESC, um, they were spending an awful lot more time on phonics specifically in year two, which they normally wouldn't be doing. Um, and particularly children who had made a lot of progress in reading, um, they sometimes fail the test because they self-correct the pseudo words into real words. Basically, they've got beyond the, the decoding skill and are reading for meaning. And so they are not, um, they're not kind of stopping and just decoding, they're turning it into, into real words. So with those children, they had to go back and teach them to decode again, once they've gone, got beyond that skill. And there were some examples of teachers having to go back with those children particularly and um, reteach them those kind of what they refer to as technical skills, which have little practical use. So basically it's just teaching to the test rather than teaching for any, for any kind of real world use. Um, so this survey respondent, a year two teacher says about how they didn't normally have phonics sessions in year two, apart from those children who were doing interventions. But this year we've had to have a daily phonics lesson for at least half an hour and many more interventions because of lockdown and it's become a substantial part of our curriculum. So I think this is interesting because it provides us with an interesting example of when you move the test, the pedagogy changes. Um, and that's, you know, I think it's quite an important um, point to make that um, when we've you know, written about um, how the assessment wags the pedagogy dog, you know, it's here, this is a clear example of how um, bringing in an assessment changes what, what teachers would normally do. Um, just to sum up this um, point about uh, testing during the pandemic, basically we concluded that um, it wasn't serving the functions of assessment very well. It's not providing useful information for the schools because the, the teachers already know the children. It's also not providing that useful information about the schools because it's just become another thing to, to make teachers prepare children for. Um, and fundamentally, it was also, I think, a misjudgment in terms of 
what head teachers and school and classroom teachers priorities were at the time. Um, uh, summed up by this quote from the head teacher who says it makes me feel like they're absolutely not interested in the principle of education being about the children in front of you. So, um, so that was all quite interesting kind of in terms of COVID and the example of um, how the relationship between pedagogy and assessment. We also asked um, the other teachers, the year one and reception teachers, about their teaching at phonics. Um, and how it related to the to the phonics screening check. So you one remember do the phonics screening check normally. Reception are usually kind of building up to it. Um, so there was about just over six hundred um, respondents to this question about what extent does the phonics screening check affect practice in relation to phonics. And as you can see, a quarter, nearly a quarter say not at all, but. Um, a significant number say to some extent or to a significant extent so it that seems to chime with the previous research which suggests that phonics the phonics screening check is having a real impact on um on practice um, affecting how people teach we also asked people to describe um their main approach to the teaching of phonics and, and we split into these three and gave them the full explanations of synthetic phonics first and foremost uh, a systematic combination with other emphases, and then um, whole texts such as picture books being the main emphasis. And just as sort of further evidence um, of the dominance of synthetic phonics, we can see that two thirds um, said that was their main approach to the teaching of phonics. And one thing we, we plan to do is to repeat this question if we can, with a similar kind of cohort of teachers to try and get some sense year by year of how people are approaching teaching of phonics. The other kind of um, interesting thing that came out was um, some kind of written comments on the survey. We, we gave people an opportunity to write um, how, what they taught and how and their views. Um, there was a significant number of people talked about the schemes that they use. Um, that's something we found in the, in the grouping project, Read, Write, Inc., which is Ruth Miskin's um, scheme of uh, uh, synthetic phonics um, and letters and sounds, which was um, a document recently, interestingly, um, rejected by the government and said it's no longer on the approved list of phonic schemes that you, schools can spend money on. Um, but Read, Write, Inc. is particularly dominant um, and I certainly, it, it, it's quite a feature of my life with a, a child in reception because not only is there the, uh, the books, the read, write, ink books, but there's also parent packs. There's a whole kind of way of thinking about phonics, which is built into read, write, ink, including, I should add, um, grouping children by their phase of phonics learning. Um, so that's interesting in itself. Um, there was some concern, particularly from more experienced teachers about how phonics was becoming the only sort of show in town, um, teachers uh, becoming described as being wedded to the idea that this is the only way children learn to read. Um, there were also teachers, as you can see here, who were um, very critical of, um, of, of what it means to do uh, phonics um, every day, that dull and dry and de-skilling us, children only being allowed books that match their phonics, um, and it's all very focused on getting them through the phonics screening check. So some kind of negative thoughts about how that's affected practice. And then finally, this, this quote about how teachers don't feel like they have any choice. It's non-negotiable 
um, children using robot arms to sew that sound out, using screening papers. Um, we have to squeeze in reading, but not sure it is all a pleasure. It is it is a it is pleasurable as it's always on a timer. So there's this feeling that phonics has become the main event and reading is being kind of squeezed out. So I'm going to end just with these two questions, which I hope you can respond to in the remaining few minutes, um, particularly about what is the impact of the long term focus. So impact in the long term of the focus on phonics, given that still 20% of children leave primary school without meeting the expected standard. And then in this situation, what can we do to support um, teachers um, to teach reading well, given that they have all of these pressures from the phonics screening check and, and indeed from other high stakes tests? Thanks very much. Thank you, Alice, and thank you, Dom. Um, very interesting uh, presentation there, and um, obviously going to probably raise some questions from the audience. So, so let's go uh, first of all to Fiona Murphy. Fiona, do you want to come on screen and ask your question? unmute Fiona are you there Fiona Bear with yeah us. sorry I'm here okay. <laughs> hello yeah hi no I, uh, it's just really interesting uh, presentation and I was just uh, wondering you know uh, looking at the research it's actually really interesting what the research actually shows about the prevalence of a phonics only approach and I'm just wondering what uh, the panelists think of the whole um science of reading uh, movement that seems to exist out there now where this approach is very much uh, pushed by the in relation to that the science that the science approves of this uh, phonics centric approach um, how science has been I suppose hijacked in a way. Um, Alice do you want me to yeah Thanks, Fiona. Um, well, I, I think, as I said in a very quick response in, in the chat, um, I think it's it's about lots of things. But the main thing for me is about who is doing the interpreting. You know, who who is interpreting the science? Um, and for now, I'm going to. I was talking about a particular type of science, and actually, you know. In my uh, beer role, I'd be quick to say that actually there's a wide range of research relevant to understanding reading. But certainly if we're talking about what is more effective of, say, two approaches, then, then that, that has been characterized as the science of reading. And then, then, yes, it's been interpreted in all sorts of ways. So unfortunately, I think the sort of social media heat about the issues does it does have some traction and it does it some of it's ridiculous actually in terms of the proper interpretation of the science that's the extreme end but even you know well-meaning people do not attend properly it's not just about attending single studies that for me is another massive problem so in 2008 you, some of you may recall that the studies were carried out in Clackmannanshire in Scotland well one study was carried out now uh, it 
it was a decent study, although it, it had methodological limitations, but then lots of studies do. But the problem was it was used as a touchstone, as the single most, I called it, I think at the time, the Holy Grail. And that's the problem. And that's why, you know, we're focusing more on trying to focus on multiple studies and the detail. And we're trying to in, interpret them in, in a reasonable way. Thanks, Tom. Alice, did you want to add anything or are you? That's fine. Okay. Okay, now we've got a question from the very smiley Sam Sims. <laughs> I think it's a good thing to be known as, yeah. <laughs> uh, thanks for the presentation, uh, both of you. Um, so some of your argument um, is focused on the dangers of the sort of assessments, sort of wagging the pedagogy dog, assessment tail wagging the pedagogy dog. Uh, uh, and criticisms about the test not providing useful information. And um, that, that may be completely true, um, but do we think those are really the purposes for which this has been introduced? You know, in, uh, you know, in policymakers' minds, and this is a very hard thing to divine, I sometimes wonder if they intend this to be the assessment wagging the pedagogy dog uh, and in that sense you know have they been successful <laughs> well, yeah, I, yeah the short answer is yes I, I mean I, I I'm not kind of naive enough to think that they didn't work out that <laughs> if they suddenly brought in a test um, everyone would respond and change their practice because that is what has always happened. Um, so yes, I think, and this sort of relates to one of the other questions in the Q&A, is quite the, the process by which, you know, this simple reading test became a phonics test and so on, is it's quite opaque um, and quite how kind of evidence was used to decide that it would be phonics, um, quite what the motivations were for then changing you know this basically forcing this change to the curriculum through an assessment um i don't really know why they wanted to do that what what the kind of underlying motives were but absolutely yes i mean so i suppose in, in answer to your question in saying um that that is what is happening uh, i i'm not saying it's a surprise i'm saying um it's interesting how powerful the assessment is and how quickly it forces a quite distinct change really in how we teach reading because now we have completely separate phonics lessons which you know 15 years ago wasn't the case um 10 years ago probably wasn't the case so um i suppose for me the interesting thing is quite how quickly these these things happen um and trying to kind of unpick the minds of policymakers i think is the is the real is the real problem, especially when all the public documentation is, you know, is, is very focused on this kind of political rhetoric, the very kind of public facing discussions about, you know, the dangers of not, not being able to read. Okay, thanks very much, Alice. Um, Tammy, Tammy Campbell, do you want to come on and ask a question? Um, thanks. Can you hear me? Yeah, we can hear you. 
okay great thanks I think the first part of my question has sort of partly been answered um, under the previous two questions which was basically why phonics because English isn't phonetically consistent so it's 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 really interesting why it's why why phonics so that basically has already kind of been answered um um, but because English isn't phonetically consistent, so it isn't inherently impossible for it, for phonics to fully teach reading. I was just wondering if you found any evidence that this focus in on phonics has damaged children's learning to read. I, thank you, Tammy. It's um it's interesting because I think it does it's it's difficult to identify um the kind of effects of like the screening check, particularly. And one thing that Dominic has done is, is look at some of the, st the statistics. The problem is that all the assessments at the end of primary school have changed, so we can't really consistently show that a relationship between having the phonics screening check and attainment at 11, for example. Um, I do think it's, it is interesting, though, that the justification was children are leaving school, primary school, unable to read, and yet we still have 20% of children still being labelled as not meeting the expected standard. Um, but quite the relationship between the two is, is difficult because of course the assessment at 11 has changed. Um, there is a lot of anecdotal kind of evidence about, for example, the children who can read, having to go back and learn to decode again, things like that. Um, but we haven't found any kind of evidence of, of damage, I would say. Dominic? Uh, well, no, I agree with you basically. Um, I suppose, that one could say if we find that um, a different way of approaching reading is better informed by evidence then the risk is if you don't follow that you do risk damaging children's life chances because learning to read is correlated with life chances but but to, i mean yeah it would be ethically a difficult study to mount thanks both um, we've got a question in the Q&A from an anonymous attendee, so I'm just going to read it out if that's okay. Someone says, thinking of Becky Allen's blog on the ungameable game, what would be an ungameable assessment strategy for reading? What would it look like? That's a tough one. Alice, over to you, because <laughs> I, don't, I don't really know what the ungameable game is, so I'm not going to be able to answer that. I suppose what they're saying is, is something that you couldn't prepare for, that you couldn't, um, you know, schools couldn't sort of teach the test in preparation for. Um, I suppose I would go back and say, why are we having an assessment strategy anyway? What is it for? You know, mm -hmm. I would rather focus on assessment that is useful to the teacher than a statutory assessment, particularly with children this age. Um, yeah, I would I'd probably go back further to ask the questions about having an, an assessment in the first place, I would say. Um, I mean, teachers will always adapt what they, you know, what uh, they do in response to the assessment because it's a high stakes assessment. So um, that's what I did when I was a teacher and it's completely kind of understandable in the frame that they work within. So, um, you know, trying to find something that they aren't going to prepare for is, is I'm not sure that's quite where our energy should be lying. Okay. On, thank you. On that tough 
tough question to ask at the end. I'm, I'm going to wrap up now just because it's four o'clock and I know people need to get onto other things. There are some questions remaining in the Q&A and also in the chat. So if you guys are happy to respond directly to those questions, we can we can stay online um, for a few minutes longer for you to type responses if that's if that's OK. Yeah, that's um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks so much to both of you um, for that really interesting talk. Um, to those of you who are regular joiners, um, we'll be back again in two weeks time as usual on June 24th at 3pm, this time with uh, Dr. Richard Murphy from the University of Texas at Austin. And he's going to be talking about what are the long run effects of a student's ordinal rank in elementary school. So for those of you that uh, want to join us then, we look forward to seeing you. Once again, a big thank you to um, Alice and to Dom for your talk today. Um, it was lovely to have you with us and thanks to everyone for joining us. Thank you all very much. Thank you.